the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Innovators Network. Kim McNicholas on innovation. Spotlighting successful entrepreneurs, innovators, investors, and industry experts. Their stories and insights can help you become better informed, better educated, and a better investor. Your host is Emmy Award-winning anchor, reporter, and writer Kim McNicholas. Kim has been a journalist at Forbes magazine, a Fox News Channel contributor, vetted more than 3,000 startups, and has been a mentor for entrepreneurs around the globe. Now, Kim McNicholas on innovation. What are the top innovations catching my eye today? I do have a laundry list. But we have to get to our first guest, so I'll just tell you about a couple of them. First, Raw Medical Systems has created a laser that unclogs arteries with so far no trauma to the vessel. It's an eczema laser, like what they use for LASIK eye surgery. And they have finally figured out how to channel that energy into a catheter that can navigate the tough twists and turns of our vasculature. It's brilliant. This Dabber laser system, take note of the name, I do expect it to revolutionize the treatment of cardiovascular disease, which is the number one killer in the United States. Another one is Adioma. It's a company started by Anna Vital and Mark Vital to create and provide an entirely new universal visual language the entire world can use to communicate seamlessly. At a time when it seems that the world is more divided than ever, Adioma could help to create some greater synergies and understanding across borders through a common language that everyone can translate without a dictionary. Cool companies, right? But how do innovators such as these dream up these technologies? Well, Richard Branson, Sir Richard Branson of the Virgin Companies, well, he has a mantra that runs through the DNA of all of his companies. It's always be connecting the dots, A, B, C, and D. Billionaire Naveen Jain had never studied astronomy or even space exploration, and yet he started Moon Express, which became the first private company to be approved by the federal government to send a spacecraft to the moon. His idea is to excavate minerals there and bring them back to Earth for us to use here. He was able to connect the dots that no one else could. He saw a story on the opening of space travel and exploration to private industry, And then another story later on about all of the minerals available on the moon. And he put two and two together and thought, hmm, why not make use of those minerals by bringing them to Earth? Now, those dots are not just exclusive to him. Those dots are both inside and outside your organization. But the million-dollar question is likely, what moments are those dots, right? And once you define those dots, then how do they come together and ultimately What does the flow of those dots actually tell you? Well, that takes some creativity. What does that mean? And how do you create a culture of creativity, one that rewards thinking outside of the box, risk-taking, collaboration, and inspiration versus competition and negativity where people fear speaking up due to those naysayers? And we all know who they are. One which 
lays a fertile ground for ideas to grow. We want that creative culture. Well, as Noah Scalin explains, it takes discipline. Please welcome Noah Scalin, author of Creative Sprint, Six 30-Day Challenges to Jumpstart Your Creativity. Welcome, Noah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) It was a long intro, but I wanted to set things up so people really understand you know, what your work can do for them and innovation. And I want to start out with you just talking about the role of creativity in innovation and those dots I spoke of. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I think you really hit on the point when you said the fertile ground. Uh, Very often I'm being asked to come to companies and talk about innovation. And everybody loves that word, right? It's a big buzzword. (laughs) That's what's going to keep you going in the economy now. That's (laughs) the thing that's going to, you know, the disruptors are coming. How are you going to survive? Innovate, innovate, innovate. Right? This is the thing to do. (laughs) And the problem is everyone says that, but no one tells you how to do it. Exactly. And it's just sort of this magical thing that some people have. And, you know, you're, you're supposed to hire the people already have this magic thing in them. And really, what's missing from this equation is, is, well, here's how I work this metaphor, which is that, you know, what business likes is linear things, right? Things that we can understand, things we can count. And so innovations, we can, oh, there, I see it, there it is. It's a thing that exists, right? And so if you imagine that, like, you have seeds of ideas, there's plenty of them out in the world, but you're planting those seeds and you're growing these innovations and you're picking the ones that you like and you're harvesting those and you're, you know, fertilizing them, you're watering them, right? All this stuff makes sense and you can really look at the ROI on this behavior. The problem is, where are these seeds growing? Mm-hmm. And it's that fertile ground. We know we need it, right? But that fertile ground is mysterious. It's invisible. It's something that's happening that's a, a mixture of things, and, and we can't tell what's going on behind the scenes. It's this dark place. And that doesn't fit with business, right? Business goes, I don't, I don't understand this. How do we plug this into a spreadsheet? And so this is the thing we're talking about is that creativity is this thing that seems very amorphic, but is very, very necessary. In fact, without it, right, then you're throwing seeds at a cement sidewalk, and they're never going to grow. And once people embrace that idea, then we can say, well, how do we make this fertile ground? How do we create a creative culture in which to grow ideas into innovation? Well, I remember in school, they would talk about right brain controls logic and left brain controls creativity. And teachers would box you into one side or the other. But you would argue that left brain actions do take creativity, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, creativity at this point is necessary in every field, in every industry, every action you take. The problem is, is again, because creativity sounds so loosey-goosey, it's hard for people. But if I say creative problem solving, suddenly everyone goes, oh, yeah, I do need that, right? Oh, that's the thing I recognize. And so that's really what we're talking about. And what's great is, yeah, you can take a systematic approach and apply it to something that seems very uh, loose, like art, creativity, this thing that you know, seems to only apply to certain people with talent, right? This is this idea that we have about it. Mm-hmm. And what our conjecture here is really that it's not about talent. It's actually creativity is a, is a skill like any other, and it's a skill you need to practice. So before we get into the 30-day challenge, your book, and tangible, actionable things that everyone can do to spark creativity no matter what their business, a little bit of a quick background because I think it'll really set the stage. You studied art in college, but what happened after you graduated? Did you go into a less creative field? Well, I actually intentionally went into a creative field. I, I decided to become a, a graphic designer and also do work okay. in the marketing world. So I was trying to make creative work for a living, yeah. getting paid to do creative work, which was great. Uh, but, of course, that's a job. And so it's, not, it's never going to be the same as just doing you know, fine art, doing whatever I want to do all the time. Right. But then at some point in your career, you got stuck. What was that point then? Yeah, so I ran my own business for many years. I'd worked for other people for many years, and I had my dream job. I was being creative for a living. Mm-hmm. The problem is that after a while of doing it, I ran out. I was not inspired. I, I mm. never questioned where my own creativity came from until suddenly it was gone, and I was like, oh, what do I do? I've got my dream job, 
and I have no excitement about this. I'm not moving forward. I'm not growing. I'm not making more money. I've just stagnated. And then, then those life coaches will say, meditate, meditate, meditate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no! Don't tell me to meditate. I need inspiration. I need action. I refuse. Right? I need now. I need to problem solve now. I can't wait. <laughs> so to get unstuck, you started a year-long daily art pra- practice, which millions on social media know is Skull a Day. How did you get started on that? I mean, how did you then not only get started, but then stick with it? <laughs> Yeah, well, it was a random idea, and I, and I really advocate for people to capture those. We all have these random thoughts in our heads, but I, I said, you know what? I need to be making something that I'm passionate about. I happen to like skulls. There's nothing deep about it, but this little idea was like, if I do this daily, I'll get something. And what I didn't realize is that I would get a major life transformation, new career, all these amazing opportunities that came out of it. But it was about doing something little that built over time, and it was hard. It was, a, it was actually it's like running a marathon. It's a difficult thing, but it's a worth doing. And the way I did it was that I started really small, making 20 minute little things and they built up over time to two to four hours a day and to up all the way to 10 hours a day but I was doing it knowing that every time I did this I was sharing it so I was making a thing and I was sharing it publicly and I was getting this great feedback which made me want to continue and I was developing momentum around creativity and so then suddenly oh I liked how that felt I want to do that again I could celebrate daily this creativity this is really exciting it's not waiting for giant projects to get done that by the time they're done I'm on to the next thing so this is a really exciting a feeling I developed around doing this little practice. Really quickly, so people understand, describe Skull a Day. Because it seems awfully dark, right. and it might have been because you were stuck in, in a dark place. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it. If you go check it out, I mean, it's still up at SkullAday.com, but you'll see that, that really it was a very fun and playful project. It was about me taking a single image of the skull and reproducing it out of anything I could. And so I was working with spaghetti. I was working with shoes. I was working with googly eyes. I mean, the point was playing, having fun. It was a, it was a very childlike thing in that way. It was expressive. It wasn't about making great work every day, though eventually I started making work that I really liked. And I ended up with book deals to share it. I ended up with licensing opportunities and opportunities to show that work and turn it into a portfolio of work that then got me other jobs. So, you know, it started out as something just sort of ridiculous. And frankly, when people hear of it, I know they scoff and it's fine because (laughs) I had this incredible experience from it. Well, coming up next right here on Kim McNicholas on innovation, you're going to get your creativity on to spark that next billion dollar idea. So you don't want to miss that. Stay with us. Now, back to Kim McNicholas on innovation. Welcome back. We have a sought-after author, speaker, and consultant on creativity for schools, businesses. Noah Scalen is helping everyone to get their creativity on to hopefully spark that next billion-dollar idea. His latest book is Creative Sprint, Six 30-Day Challenges to Jumpstart Your Creativity. Now, Noah, at the heart of it is really the idea that creativity does not take natural talent. We talked earlier about right brain versus left brain. Well, that's a myth. Everyone can be creative. That it's really a practiced skill set like guitar, yoga, kiteboarding. I know kiteboarding is big in the, in the tech community. It's just something that anyone can do and can master in, you say, 30 days. Right? How? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, so first of all, you have to understand – Human beings are just creative individuals. It's part of our DNA. It's who we are. But what's happened is it's gotten drummed out of us. You know, we, we go down certain paths in life and we've been told, well, you're not a good at drawing or you can't do this thing. So you're not the creative type. And, it's, and then it gets shut down. And so what we're really doing is reawakening it. And we're making it really accessible by making it simple, small task, a little thing, a practice that you develop over time. Because we, we know that anything else, that you wouldn't just step out and start doing kiteboarding without ever having tried it or practiced it or done anything and be like, now I'm going to be in a competition. 
but we treat creativity that way. We show up at work and we're said, on the dot, you got to be creative. Let's go. Do it now. But you haven't practiced. You haven't been to the gym. You haven't worked out. It's ridiculous. And so that's what really, really we're doing is giving people a chance to work out, to go do that gym work. And we start you small because that's how it works. You make tiny little hurdles that people can jump over, feel good about, move forward, and then you start jumping bigger and bigger and bigger hurdles. It's interesting because creativity, I mean, it's how you write an email. Creativity is how you speak to your family that, you know, as you stop for a moment and think, ooh, how should I address this situation? It's all creativity. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's really, you know, it's really looking for opportunities that are in everything around you all the time and you're missing them because you haven't had trained yourself to see them. So talk about the three core activities as we before we get into exactly what the creative sprint is and then in your book as well. Talk about those three core activities that are key to executing you know, creating, sharing and reflecting. Absolutely. So we actually have a little model we call DORSA, which is do something reflect and share, assess and apply. And so that's sort of the business version of it. But basically the idea is that, you know, so many of our practices in the business world, the lean model, design thinking, it's a lot of thinking, thinking, processing, mm-hmm. processing. What we've realized is that making is a form of thinking. And so if we can get people to doing things, starting with that, turning the dial from the thinking part to the doing part and say, do something, but after you do it, the important thing is reflecting on what happened and sharing that to other people because once you share it, opportunities form. And then once you've done that, you can assess what, that, what you got from that and how to apply it to your work. And then it's cyclical, so you keep doing it over and over and over again. But the great part is when you start with the doing and you start with that very low barrier, it becomes a very accessible, easy thing. So in comes the creative sprint. Hashtag creative sprint. Explain. Yeah. So Creative Sprint was our way of showing people how well this worked. We know it worked. My sister and I, who co-authored the book and created the Creative Sprint concept, really, I've been doing this daily creative work. I've been teaching it with people, but it's daunting to consider taking on something daily for a year. It's a lot of work. So we said, you know what, 30 days makes a habit. If we can get people to practice this, even honestly beyond just 10 days, 7, 8, 9 days, you're going to have some good experiences. You're going to develop something and be surprised and want to do more. It becomes addictive. And so really what we did is we created this idea, Creative Sprint, where you could sign up, get a prompt sent to you each day for 30 days and then once you got that it was your chance to make something respond to it in some way and share it publicly and see what happens so super simple and then our book is a is six versions of that so you could pick a skill that you're trying to develop further and choose one of the sprints and we're actually about to start our next free public sprint on october 1st so people interested in trying can go to creativesprint.co and sign up and find out what it's all about for free so what types of things are you going to be sending us? Because maybe give us an example of a couple of them and go into some detail of what you expect people to do or some ideas of what people have done in order to – because people like me, I I am stunted by the po- all the possibilities that I could do with right. one particular question. And then I end up procrastinating and I never get to it because I don't know which one to start with. Right. And so part of the structure of Creative Sprint is designed to intentionally, hopefully, override some of these problems people have. First of all, a blank page, hugely overwhelming. That's where oh, the yes. comes from. You stare at it, right? You don't know what to do. So first of all, giving somebody a prompt means there's not a blank page. There's something to respond to. And you can go, oh, this is so cool. I want to do it. Or you can go, I hate this idea, but that makes me think of something else that I do want to do. Either one is totally acceptable. The other is the time limit. You got to do it a day. So it doesn't matter. Right. And also we're saying, hey, this isn't about being precious or making great work, but you don't let that be a problem. It's just getting it done is the key. Done is good. Move on. Do the next thing. So I'll give you an example because we use the same prompt every time for the first day. We always say, make something that fits in the palm of your hand with the materials around you. Yes, very open-ended. And it's supposed to be. 
We're not trying to give you a craft uh, skill that we're saying follow these directions and get this result. But it means that it's, it's tricky, and what happens is people grab something around them, and they start playing with it. And once they start playing, they find the solution. And again and again, it, it's amazing what I end up doing, because I do this every time, but also seeing what people, how diverse they are. And so what's great is once you get started, you put your stuff out that you see everyone else doing it, and then you're going, oh, I could have done that? Oh, wow. And so then suddenly the next day, the prompt comes, and you go, oh, you know, now that I saw that person do that, I might give that a try. And suddenly you're creating an environment of we know sponsors, you know, creates more and more and more creativity. It's not about doing it alone. It's not about being, you know, the lone soul genius, which is a, this mythology we've created around creativity. It's really something that happens collaboratively. And I'm a little bit competitive. And I started your last challenge and then I stopped because I, I got to that one. You know, first one on the last one was do a selfie. And the second one was doing, you know, whatever's in front of you. And then I stopped and I thought, oh my gosh, what if what I make is not good enough? I'm sitting here at Pete's. I have a straw. I have a cup. I don't know what to do. What if it's not right. good enough? I fear what other people think. But you say it's important during this time to not pass judgment on yourself. Why is this important? And by the way, that you know, I, I just would be really concerned about still what other people think. But you're saying, <laughs> <laughs> you can tell, I, I'm, I'm even at a loss for words because I'm so concerned right. about this. Yeah, no, and everybody is. I am too. I'm extremely precious. I'm a perfectionist. It's really hard for me to put work out there that yes. isn't great every day. I don't want people to judge me. And what I've learned from doing this is that when I share stuff I don't feel good about or feels incomplete, I almost inevitably get some amazing response. Somebody who loves it. It blows my mind. And it is this little trigger, this little reminder, because doing the creative sprint, really, it doesn't matter. This is a frivolous, fun thing. This isn't your real work. And so this is a great time to do that practice. But once you get used to the idea that this works and it's real, you'll start applying it to, applying to your actual work and getting the benefits of it. And so really, it's about developing these habits that you trust. So I trust the process. I'm still scared. I do it anyway. That's the key with this. And so, yeah, you have to be kind to yourself and see how kind other people are to you when you put it out. But it's an amazingly supportive community of people who do this. So once it's out in the world, it's, it's shocking. I, I tell you, I make things that I'm like, oh, I can't believe I'm going to share this today. People should know I'm better than this, and it doesn't matter at all. But it would actually inspire other people to get involved and do the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. No, this is the greatest thing. Is in, inevitably, everyone I talk to say, I started this and then my family got involved and my coworkers got They saw what I was doing. They were so excited. Then they made this person, this person, and it starts spreading. And again, this is creating this great environment, this atmosphere that you want. If you want a creative culture, you have to have a place that's supportive. You have to have time for it. And we're asking you to commit a very small time. Really, creative sprint can be done in five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. And that is a little bit of time, but often we just don't reserve it. We don't value it and we forget that if we really want innovation you've got to make time for creativity right i want to reiterate that point you have about 30 seconds but reiterate that point of how doing these exercises and getting your creativity on will actually lead to more productivity and inspiration and innovation within your group about 15 seconds yeah well here's the thing no one has creative bones in their body, and everyone says, I never have a, I don't have a creative bone in my body. You don't. It's fine. They're creative muscles, and so you have to develop them. When you do that, you create workplaces that are appealing to be in, that retain employees, that create new opportunities, and help you become the, the innovator that you need to be to survive in today's economy. So let's do this. It's creativesprint.co. Yep. Sign up today. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Noah Scaling. We really appreciate it. Coming up next, now that you have your creativity on, how do you use that creativity to create a loyal team to scale your business? Find out next. Now, back to Kim McNicholas on innovation. Great teams make it look oh so easy. They create brilliant products, deliver excellent service, 
and achieve extraordinary results. From the outside, it's easy to imagine that these stellar teams must be made up of extraordinary individuals, right? Or mortals blended together by great chemistry. But neither is true. Great teams are built and maintained with great intention and can mean the difference between success and failure in any company. That's why Audrey Epstein and a team of authors wrote The Loyalist Team, How Trust, Candor, and Authenticity Create Great Organizations. Right, Audrey? That's right. Thanks for having me on the show, Kim. Now, you call the highest achieving dream teams loyalist teams because on those teams, individuals are loyal to one another, the team and the larger organization. Members work to ensure each other's successes as they work to ensure their own. They operate with absolute candor and they refuse to let each other fail. And as a result of these behaviors, they enjoy their work and always exceed They go above and beyond, right, expectations for their companies. But what does this really look like? Give me an example. Let me give you two examples. I'll give you one that I pull from the most recent headlines. So look at the Golden State Warriors. Last week, they, they faced a bit of a dilemma. They were disinvited from attending the White House because Steph Curry had said publicly in an interview he wasn't sure if he wanted to attend or not. And the team then had a choice point. And I think the owner and the GM and the players responded just as an, a loyalist team would do. They said, we encourage everyone on this team to have their own opinion. We encourage debate and discussion. We talk through the toughest issues on this team together. And the only reason that we're upset that we were disinvited in this way is it preempted the great clubhouse we were going to have with the front office staff and with all of our teammates to talk about what did we want to do, how do we want to handle this, and what do we believe. And that to me is one of the key hallmarks of a true team that at this loyalist level, that there's enough trust and candor, real talk and communication that you can share the biggest challenges and there are no elephants in the room, no undiscussables. One more example, closer to my real life, I've had the pleasure of doing coaching and consulting work with uh, Val Resorts and their executive team for probably almost the past 10 years. They have been wildly successful by any financial indicator, that's for sure. They've doubled their market cap in the past few years. They enjoy a stock price of way north of 200. Um, They've become a global powerhouse through a number of acquisitions that they've made. And I attribute much of that success in a direct way to the loyalist behavior of their senior team. Uh, Rob Katz, their CEO, has worked very hard to ensure that, one, he hires in players who are not only personally ambitious and driven, but also want to live and play by the rules of a high-performing team who truly care about company success over personal egos or agendas. And then he set up a a set of norms or behaviors that the team has to live by. Mm -hmm. Things like, we're going to leave the room aligned. We're not going to gossip. We don't finger point. Um, We make decisions together. He even instituted this practice where every two weeks, 
they get together and safe space to give each other real feedback. Feedback on how they could be more personally effective and feedback on how their functions or organizations could as well, because he knows that that's what makes teams better. When you feel that you have the support of everyone around you to take risks, to be creative, to try new things, and they'll have your back if you make a mistake, and you have people around you who are going to challenge you to be better and give you feedback to help you quickly hone your skills, it feels like you can't fail. So the most effective teams share some very specific characteristics or, or traits that are identifiable and replicable. They include loyalty, honesty, and trust, right? Absolutely. It all starts with trust. Without trust between every single team member, you can never create a loyalist team. The, the issue is when we don't have trust, we can't be vulnerable. We, we can't admit we need help. We can't say, I made a mistake. We don't get any of the benefits from being a team. And when we don't have trust, we don't have conflict. We don't challenge each other because it always feels like there's some kind of hidden agenda. Why are they really telling, you know, why are they really saying to the group that my idea has flaws? Are they trying to make me look bad? Is mm-hmm. it about their ego? Are they trying to take my resources away from me? So when we have trust, we can assume positive intent. We know that people are there for the right reasons and for the higher agenda. And that's when we can get loyalty. Um, with trust on a team, you can... It's your right to make every single person earn your trust, and you can secret test them to death for two years until they've proven without a doubt that they're trustworthy. But every day that you do this, you're destroying value for your team and your company. It's not taking risks or moving forward together. I think that ego um, and insecurity are two of the biggest mm -hmm. factors that lead to a team that is not loyal, that is not honest, and there is no trust. I would absolutely agree with you. And the way that we get past some of those challenges is by um, setting an intention and a goal that we are going to support each other in this way of a loyalist team. Um, every team that I know that has become a loyalist team has made this proclamation. They've done a very deep diagnosis of their current state. Um, they've looked at what's working and not working on their team, and they've set a standard of norms or behaviors um, that make it clear what the expectations are. And it lets people relax because they know no one is, you know, on their worst day, Someone's going to be there to help them up, not to shove them into the ground. And so that you call them the not-so-effective teams. You're, you're calling them low-performing teams such as saboteur teams, benign saboteur teams, and situation loyalist teams. Can you explain each one and give an example, the difference Absolutely. between them all? For sure. So the lowest-performing teams in our research, this is 15% of the teams that we've actually assessed and measured. These are teams, if you've been on one, you won't forget it. It's like, it, it's um, devastating. You wake up in the morning, you don't want to go because you don't trust people. Uh, there are silos, people are playing politics behind the scenes, they're making plays. Um, I've seen mutinies on teams. 
um, there's really low lack of trust. And it feels like if I win, you lose. Or if you win, then I have to lose. Um, you know, I, I think we've seen some big company saboteur teams lately um, that really suffer from um, ethical and like both ethics and visions issue in Uber and Fox News. Well, I I don't want to get political because we may differ on some political fronts with our viewers and you. So if we can keep your political agenda outside of this interview, that would be amazing. Sure, of course. Um, I just think that that um, sometimes we 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 see uh, bad results of saboteur teams. One level up from from that we call uh, benign saboteur teams. And these are teams that are not actively engaged in sabotage. It's more passive. It's those teams where it's sort of live and let live. Like you stay in your swim lane, stay in mine, and we won't cross boundaries. So I get no benefit from you being on my team um, because you're not there to help me or make me better. And I'm not there to help you and make you better. So, um, so instead, what if the, what if the, know, what if the boss is the saboteur? You know, I, I've just been going back and forth with, with someone who's really concerned about a, a, a boss who's not the CEO. There are two co-founders, but the other one owns half the company. And, you know, the CEO is not, you know, you think that the CEO in every other company in the world, even though you have a co-founding team, the CEO makes the final decisions, even if the co-founder, right. other co-founders on the board, even if they have an executive vice president role, they, the CEO still sets the agenda, sets the strategy and, you know, sets things up. But when the other person wants the same control as the CEO and, in fact, more, and they end up sabotaging the team, what do you do about that? Well, the only thing that I think the CEO can do is engage in an honest conversation with this person. Um, Oftentimes, people don't understand or they don't see how their behavior or habits are negatively impacting the common goal that they have together, which is to create value in this new entity. So, you know, sometimes, I think it was Marshall Goldsmith, a great leadership speaker, who said, you know, oftentimes successful people confuse correlation and causation. We we know we're successful. We know we've done a lot of things. Therefore, we think all those things have made us successful. It's important to help people see what they're successful in spite of. So to me... This CEO has to try to engage in conversation to help this person understand that, you know, they're biting off their nose at this point if they're going to lose the engagement of new employees. Yep. But when you talk Um, about insecure and ego, there is absolutely no reasoning with them. And coming up right here on Kim McNicholas on Innovation, we'll have more on how to create a loyalist team within your organization. So stay with us. Now, back to Kim McNicholas on innovation. (laughs) Does that make me crazy? My producer, Marco, is a genius with choosing music. Right, Audrey? (laughs) Those saboteur teams can make you crazy, right? Absolutely. You were the author, you know, one of the authors, a team of authors that wrote The Loyalist Team, How Trust, Candor, and Authenticity Create Great Organizations. And you say that saboteur teams that destroy value for the company and create misery for for everyone can actually be improved no matter how dysfunctional a team is, right? There is hope. (laughs) (laughs) 
there is Give us hope, hope if you're willing <laughs> to put in the hard work. So what advice would you, you have know, for a dysfunctional team such, you know, as uh, you mentioned, so many out there? What are the signs? The advice. So the signs that you want to our team are this. If you're the team leader, people are coming to you to talk trash about each other. They're not dealing with the issues. They can't work through challenges that they have with each other. And it starts to reflect on the quality of the work output. That's how you know that you're on a saboteur team or that you might lead a saboteur team. Um, if you do lead a saboteur team, you know, the, to me, the first thing that you need to do is face reality and declare. You need to get <laughs> to declare, together. I give, I get it. <laughs> it is what it is. <laughs> It is own what it. it is right now and own it. And we all have culpability. And if we're going to fix it, then we have to talk about what's, what's going on um, in the room. Um, that's why we say it's really important to um, diagnose why you have a saboteur team. Um, I, I think that, you know, if a business has a challenge, there's a new competitor who enters into the marketplace or um, there is, you know, uh, like a product launch that's been delayed, the business sits down and diagnoses what's the root cause. Why do we have this challenge and then how do we fix it? Yet when we have a saboteur team, it's like we go to the doctor and just say, I'm sick, and we don't tell them any of the symptoms. So we don't know how to fix it. So it's like, oh, let's go on an off-site. You know, if we fill in the blank do a rope scores or play paintball or go out even, you know, have a drink together, we'll be able to work through it. But without an accurate diagnosis of why these challenges exist, we can't start to fix it. And part of fixing it, though, it's getting people to forget the past. I mean, I think it's also really important to handle those mental files that people hold on one another. Can you talk about that? That's probably critical to success in the future. Absolutely. So we all create files or our stories about each other that are our shorthand of who people are and why they act the way they are, why they act the way they do. So we create files on people based on a one-time interaction, our first impression. We create files on people uh, based on, you know, a situation we've had with someone similar to them. Um, like if someone's lazy. Right. Someone's lazy and then you treat them as if they won't follow through with anything. So we get this idea that someone's lazy. Maybe someone just said they're lazy. We can even create files on, you know, like, uh, I don't know, HR folks are like this. Engineers are like that. We create these stereotypes. We believe them to be true. Yeah, we believe them to be true. And then we create a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we think someone's lazy. We don't give them the work. They don't do the work. And now it is true that they're acting in a lazy manner because we are not empowering them to actually get work done. So on loyalist teams, we have people refresh or clear their files. We How do you do that? Feedback. It's easier said than done. <laughs> oh, forget they even were lazy and they didn't show up to work on time the past two years. Definitely not. Um, I am not suggesting that you, you, know, you just forget about it. I'm suggesting you do the hard work to help people understand their files. Most people aren't just lazy. Most people come with good intentions and we have habits to get in our way 
Um, we do things that we don't know the consequences or we don't understand the impact that we have on other people. It's not our intention to be jerks. And so helping people see their file and having real conversation with them, being open to what is my file? How do people see me and how could I be better um, is a great place to start. And that's what loyalist teams do um, because they talk about the real issues. So give us a few. How do you climb out of, in your words, saboteur hell? <laughs> the way that you climb out of saboteur hell um, is by uh, focusing on, number one, uh, trust among all team members. Number two, creating a common goal that's greater than any one person's agenda. Um, and number three, Um, putting a plan together that looks at team strengths and challenges and focuses on what are we going to have to do better in order to meet these needs. Getting feedback on the team from other people, um, I think, really helps. Getting data about the team and its effectiveness or ineffectiveness um, is absolutely critical. And you're going to have probably 30 seconds to answer my really long-winded question that I have, which is one final question, because it's something that's personal to me. And I I hear, you know, the word team all the time when I get involved with a project. And it's team in a way that not one person is supposed to stand out. But there always needs to be a designated leader, I think, that actively every moment of every day creates a successful team dynamic. Someone needs to be the one that keeps all members accountable in creating a streamlined channel of communication. And certain roles in a team naturally speak to one person over another's work, getting seen naturally more, you know, than others. So how do you handle animosity and jealousy when that happens without raining on the parade of the person who is getting the attention for his or her work? You have 15 seconds, actually. (laughs) 15 faces this at some point. Someone is going to get more attention at every time. Um, But what you have to do is create an environment where, A, you hire superstars who also want to be good team players, and, B, you keep your eye on the prize. The team wins when every single person wins. Uh, not the other way around. Great advice. Thank you so much, Audrey. Have a great weekend, everyone. This has been Kim McNicholas on Innovation. You can connect with Kim on Facebook forward slash Kim McNicholas or email Kim McNicholas at gmail.com. Be sure to join us again next Friday at 1 for Kim McNicholas on Innovation. This show is distributed by the Innovators Network. For more information and other great shows and content, visit theinnovators.network. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.